Good evening, everybody. This is Darius Sasemi uh, with GVWire. Welcome to another episode of Unfiltered, along with my co-host, Steve Randau. Yeah, and we're, we're missing Mike Carbasi tonight. Everybody knows last week that saw the show last week, he was in Armenia. Yeah. We don't know. Is he the, back? Did the Russians try to hit him with get plutonium him? or something? We, <laughs> just, we never know. But, but no, he's back. But he's a little under the weather, so we're not going to have him on Unfiltered tonight. We're not sure if he got uh, uh, plutonium uh, or radiation poisoning <laughs> right. by the, by the from Ruskies Putin. from Putin. Yeah. <laughs> we know that's pretty commonplace in <clears throat> that part of the world, and at so least in Russia. it's just us tonight. Just us. And our guests. We have special guests. That's right. <clears throat> and we have uh, two special guests for you this evening. Uh, Supervisor Nathan Maxick is going to talk to us about uh, Fresno County, uh, the, their budget. Their four trillion, I'm sorry, four <laughs> billion dollar budget, and also are they uh, preparing for uh, an economic storm, uh, basically a recession, bracing for a recession? So Nathan will be joining us. Uh, and but you're forgetting the big thing. Oh, you that's you going to talk about it. The name change. Name right? change. Now in Nathan's district, and we're gonna I'm gonna tease this out a little bit. Okay. I want people to get ready. This is a big deal. The the government wants to change the name of Squaw Valley. The people there, Darius, I'm going to let Nathan go into details. Okay. I'm not, I don't think they want to change the name. Okay. So we're going to talk to Nathan about changing the name of Squaw Valley, which is in the heart of his district. And anything that has the word Squaw will be deleted in that's California. What we, that's what we hear. Okay. So let's so find out. Nathan will be talking about that. And then in the second half, we're going to, our, our special guest is, is Hamid Entizam. A theological scholar, Muslim scholar, talking about what's happening in Iran with the oppression on women's rights, on civil rights, which has been going on for decades. Um, Iran calls itself an Islamic Republic. Is it really Islamic or is it just a dictatorship uh, hiding under the name Islam and, and taking out, doing atrocities really against uh, human rights and women's rights under the uh, cover, a false cover, uh, and so Hamid will kind of walk us through Islam versus Islamic Republic. There you go. Okay, but so let's get uh, Nathan on. Um, All righty. Good evening, uh, Supervisor. How are you doing tonight? Thank you for having me on the show. Uh oh, we're good. Okay. Um, welcome to Unfiltered. Uh, Mike Carbasi is missing tonight, but your colleague is uh, here with us. So tell us about uh, a st state of the county address that happened earlier last week, and also uh, what do you see in, in terms of recession? How much? What does the budget look like? Um, and what's Fresno County doing to brace itself for the upcoming recession, if there is one? And then also, finally, we're going to talk to you about um, Squaw Valley and what your thoughts are on the name change, and what is the name going to be changed to? So take Excellent. it away, Nathan. Sure. Uh, so let's start with uh, the state of the county. So last week, our uh, Brian Pacheco, who's the chairman of our board, delivered the state of the county, did a great job, and there were four different individuals that were recognized for their contributions uh, throughout Fresno County, with uh, Sheriff Margaret Mims kind of being the centerpiece of uh, individuals that have done great work uh, in the community. She received the Lifetime Achievement Award, and it was really good to really put an exclamation point on the end of, of her career. She's going to be in office until January. 
Uh, and then, of course, uh, Brian Pacheco talked about the fact that we've just passed the largest budget in the county's history. It's just under $4.5 billion. He talked about different programs that we're funding and how really the, the county is committed to infrastructure. We've set uh, millions of dollars aside for um, a new ag building. There's millions of dollars set aside to revitalize the campus where the Board of Supervisors currently operates on. Money set aside for new libraries. And so again, infrastructure for me was really a, a cornerstone, a theme that uh, the uh, chairman of course highlighted. Also, we talked about the employees of Fresno County. With inflation and just the challenges of hiring, it's been very difficult for us to um, not only hire employees, but to keep the employees we have. And so uh, we've uh, been fighting and trying to make sure that our the wages that we pay in Fresno County are competitive with the private sector. So we don't just train people here and then lose them to, to other regions. When it comes to recession, there's a lot of warning signals that are out there right now. And with the Fed raising interest rates as rapidly as they are, um, it, uh, it's very, it's concerning. Uh, some of it is necessary because uh, we've really had cheap money at our fingertips for, I, I would argue, 20 years. And uh, this cheap money, everybody's got used to it. And now with the federal government spending trillions of dollars, um, that has caused inflation. And so with the Fed right, uh, raising interest rates quickly, um, they know that uh, a consequence of doing that is, is going to be us entering into a recession. So we're already starting to see some warning signals out there right now. Um, we're, uh, you know, you take a look at like the automobile sector. I was reading some uh, articles about inventory of uh, automobile dealers and, and the inventory is starting to rise. Uh, over the course of the last two, year, two years with COVID, uh, supply chains broke down. And so a lot of those supply chains have begun to kind of come back um, into order. But right now, when you're trying to purchase a new vehicle, it's not uncommon to have a 5 or 6% interest rate on an automobile where a few years ago, you could get 0% financing. And uh, two, you could go to your local credit union and, and get an auto loan on a new car for 1.5%. So with interest rates rising, it's very difficult difficult to get those low interest rates. And so with the higher interest rates, it's pricing more and more people out of the market. And again, with our budget, things that we've done, we've also set aside uh, more money for our reserve. We're up to about a $70 million reserve. Uh, we also have about $20 million in, in a budget mitigation account, which sounds like a lot, but when you have a $4.5 billion budget, if for whatever reason you, you begin to lose out on streams of revenue from the state and federal government, you can burn through $90 million in the course of really a month. So uh, we're trying to be as prudent as possible. The projects that we're gonna be funding uh, this next uh, budget year, we're gonna fund a lot of those with cash. And because right now trying to go out and borrow, it just doesn't make a, a whole lot of sense because of the interest rates that, that we would have to pay um, out there on the open market. So things that Fresno County is doing right now, um, we're, we're trying to focus in on our existing employees and making sure that we retain them as much as possible. I think we created close to 40 new positions out of 8,300 positions that we have at the county. So we're not going out and trying to expand programs quickly, uh, but where a lot of those program or a lot of those new positions were focused were in the sheriff's department. So just with uh, uh, the growth of Fresno County, we've got uh, different parts of the county that require um, additional patrols. And so uh, we've just authorized five new officers and we're gonna be taking a look at the potential of hiring five more 
maybe uh, uh, to see if that makes sense sometime in, in January or February. So we're committed to public safety, we're committed to infrastructure at the county. Uh, and while there are challenges on the horizon with our budget, uh, we're, we're trying to be very prudent. So uh, when things do slow down, we'll have enough reserves in place that we won't have to uh, be in a position to lay people off. And before we go into Squaw Valley, I need you to settle a, uh, a question here. So Darius and I often are talking about the economy and, um, and he doesn't think we're in a recession yet. And I'm telling him we've been in a recession for two months. Uh, we did a GV wire poll uh, this last week. Do you think the U.S. will fall into a recession? Kind of a forward-looking thing and a pretty dramatic <clears throat> number of people said yes. So um, Darius, you might not know this, but Nathan's one of these guys, Supervisor Magzik gets up in the morning. He reads news from around the world. By the time I get into the office, he usually has an article for me from The Economist or The Wall Street Journal. So uh, we'll catch up a little bit. I know the markets have been going up a little bit the last couple of days. But Nathan, do you believe that a recession is inevitable? And, and let us know that. And then if so, do you see this soft landing situation or do you see a more difficult time in the economy? So again, I need to share with uh, all the viewers right now that uh, these, this is just my personal opinion. I am not an expert in this area, but, uh, and two, uh, to, to really quantify, are we in a recession? It kind of depends on who you ask. Some people define that by two quarters back to back where you actually um, have the economy um, contracting and not expanding. And we've, we've had that. Other people look at indicators to, to point to uh, you know, a looming recession. Uh, they'll take a look at uh, three-year treasuries and compare those to what the 10-year treasury yield is. And some people look at the two-year, five-year. And when you have yield curve inversions, typically that points to a looming recession or you could be, it could be in one currently. So um, to my knowledge, I don't believe the three-month um, the three-month treasuries are paying more than the 10-year treasuries, but I do believe the two- and five-year um, uh, treasuries are paying more than the 10-year. So uh, looking at markets, volatility in, in the markets is significant right now. Um, and in my personal opinion, I do believe that we are, are in a recession. And one of the things that's been propping up our economy has been the spending of the federal government. And the federal government has really uh, begun to uh, reduce some of that spending, but I still laugh a little bit. I was reading an article today where it talked about how um, the government still needs to spend about a trillion more each year than it receives just to meet the obligations that it's made uh, for social welfare programs um, and also for the Inflation Reduct Reduction Act over the course of the next 10 years. All this new spending is gonna add uh, an additional roughly $1 trillion um, to the deficit annually. And so um, when I see that and uh, I take a look at the fact that our, um, I take a look at that our overall economy is contracting, I personally do believe that uh, we, we are currently in a recession. Thank you, Nathan, for that. Um, as you said, the recession defined typically by two uh, quarter, uh, quarters of contraction, negative GDP, uh, which is not look, doesn't look like we're going to have it this year. But first half of the year for an, was an anomaly, uh, even though we had in, uh, still incredible uh, um, employment numbers. And employment numbers are going to kind of get in trouble sometime next year as the Fed continues to raise interest rates. 
to, to really engineer a slowdown to bring, the, to bring inflation down in, in our country and really across the world. Uh, so we're bracing ourselves uh, in the housing industry uh, for this slowdown. Uh, let me uh, jump into uh, to see if there's any questions uh, on the no questions yet. So let, let's just jump in uh, before we wrap up into Squaw Valley. That's in your district. Uh, kind of tell us about the name change. Uh, what is the name going to change to? Do we have that yet? And what are the residents of Squaw Valley? What are their um, comments on the name change of their town? Sure. So um, Squaw Valley is a beautiful community, which is uh, just up Highway 180. It is about 30 miles east of the, the city of Fresno. And if you've ever traveled up to the Cat Haven, it's just beyond um, uh the Cat Haven is just beyond Squaw Valley. And of course, Wonder Valley is a beautiful community, which is, uh, you know, about six miles away from where Squaw Valley is too. So uh, great re region. It's been around for over 150 years as far as with that name uh, sake tied to it. Um, some of the studies that I've done, I've been able to see a small school that was created, um, I think in 1869, that was called uh, Squaw Valley Elementary School. And so the, you know, the name is well over 150 years old. So about uh, two and a half years ago, my office was approached by some individuals that uh, were interested in potentially uh, changing the name of Squaw Valley. And what I shared, what my office shared with that group at the time that was that uh, if any area that is interested in having a name change, the first thing that needs to happen is you need to have a community meeting um, you need to hear from the residents of that region that's going to be affected. And then from there, um, that information needs to be brought, you know, brought to me, brought to the Board of Supervisors, and then we can take appropriate action. Uh, this particular group decided that what they wanted to do was to go to the city of Orange Cove. And back in January of uh, 2021, they went to Orange Cove, asked that Orange Cove pass a resolution, uh, basically saying that uh, Squaw Valley needs to change its name. Um, and that Squaw Valley, uh, the term Squaw is, is very offensive. And when I found out that that was taking place, I called into that uh, city council meeting and just asked for uh, the city to pause a little bit and not take action on that, on that resolution because really what needs to happen, the name, uh, if, if a name change is gonna happen, it needs to be driven by the community, not by um, cities that aren't a part of Squaw Valley. And so, from that point forward, uh, there was uh, some individuals that came to the Board of Supervisors. They really wanted uh, our board to agendize something and actually agendize this resolution that they had, which was very negative on the name um, and uh, uh, had a lot of comments in there that I don't believe the Squaw Valley community agreed with. And I continued to share with them that what they needed to do is organize a community meeting in Squaw Valley so the residents there could weigh in on, on what they desired. And this group decided not to do that. Uh, the group did reach out to the federal government, to Deb Holland, uh, who is uh, part of the Department of the Interior. That's my understanding. And uh, in November of 2021, um, uh, Mrs. Holland decided to say that the term squaw is offensive and she's gonna eliminate that term from all place names across the United States. And uh, about five weeks ago, my office received notice, the county of Fresno received notice that Deb Holland had changed, uh, had changed four place names in Fresno County alone. Uh, so we had a Squaw Lake 
There was a Squaw Leap. I think there was a Squaw Peak. I can't remember one of the other Squaw locations. And then there was Squaw Valley. And uh, she did not say that she was ready to change that name. She had a suggested name for us. She was, uh, she shared with us that uh, the term um, Yokuts Valley was something that was offered up and that they had, you know, liked that term. But before they proceeded, they wanted to hear what the Board of Supervisors wanted. And that immediately uh, kicked me into gear to organize a community meeting, which took place the end of September, I want to say September 20th. And um, at that particular meeting, there were hundreds of residents that came out. Um, some of the supporters of the name change were there as well. And they were given an opportunity to, to speak to a lot of the residents of Squaw Valley. But um, there were many Native American, one of the things that was so striking to me that Fresno Bee came out, the media came out, but there were many Native American women, uh, a, a few from the Waxachi tribe. There was one for sure. Um, from the Dunlap Band of Mono Indians. And they were, they were there not to speak on behalf of their tribes, but to speak specifically on their own behalf. And every woman that spoke that was Native American at the event, the, the community meeting said that they did not want the name changed. And one woman, one of the comments that she made, which was very striking to me, she was holding a child and she shared publicly that her grandmother used to call her um, her, her little squawk. And the, the woman posed the question to the proponents of this name change saying, if the term squaw is offensive, then are you telling me that my grandmother was offending me by using this term um, when I was a child? And of course, nobody said a word. They would have been foolish to try to weigh in in regards to that. And because clearly the answer is no, it was, a it was an affectionate term that the, the grandmother uh, was, was sharing with, uh, you know, with uh, uh, that woman. And so um, I've read different articles and a lot of the information I've gleaned, I've not found any indication that when Squaw Valley here in Fresno County was formed, that the term was formed and used specifically to be an offensive term to Native American women. I've actually found the opposite. But what I have done in addition to that is uh, about 10 days ago, uh, on the 21st of September, right after that meeting, we mailed out ballots, um, just little cardstock ballots that we put together to uh, roughly 1,436 households that we could identify in Squaw Valley, so one per household. And we asked some questions. First question was, should Squaw Valley Okay. Yeah, so real quick, um, the ballots went out. Should Squaw Valley change its name? Yes or no? And then the other questions listed on there, what should the name be? And there were nine different uh, name choices. So far, we've received um, close to 400 ballots back. Uh, I've, I've asked residents to return those ballots by Friday. On October 11th, there will be an item on the Board of Supervisors agenda where um, we can uh, take a look at what the residents want. We're going to aggregate all that data. And then from there, it'll be up, up to the Board of Supervisors to decide what course of action makes sense. But there will be a resolution that clearly states what the residents of Squaw Valley want. Yeah, Nathan, thanks for that report. I think, you know, of course, I'm going to wait till our next board meeting. Uh, you've got this item on the agenda. I'll listen thoroughly to, you know, every side. But I think I'm going to be inclined to uh, support what the local press said. And even if it does fly in the, in the face of the state or the federal government, and then they might have to change it kind of over the top, 
of uh, desires of Fresno County. We'll wait and see how that you know, kind of filters out. But it just seems to me like, Nathan, and you and I have talked about this, at every turn, um, the state, the feds, they want to take away more local control, right? So they want to take decisions away from the hands of the people, move them away to Sacramento or Washington, D.C., the exact opposite of what our founders envisioned for this country and the exact opposite of what made this country so great, you know, for such a long time is local control of local issues. But uh, it seems like more and more we're getting these issues taken away from our from our hands. Yeah. Federal government get, keeps getting bigger. What is it? Uh, we're going to have a trillion dollar uh, budget deficit for many years to come. Budget keeps getting bigger. But um, politicians, by and large, especially at a federal level, uh, how do we get more dollars and then tell you how we're going to spend it? I mean, get, we may give some of it back to you, but it's going to have strings attached. Okay, we're going to move on. Thanks, Nathan. Nathan, thank you. Um, Take care, guys. For that update, we appreciate we appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, yeah, Nathan Maxick, su supervisor of Fresno County. Thank you, uh, a frequent guest of uh, GB Wire Unfiltered. Thank you. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you. Take care, guys. Okay, next, uh, please stick around, Nathan. Uh, we're going to have a really interesting topic coming up um, on Islam and the Islamic Republic and what it's doing. Uh, Hamid Entizam is our uh, guest this evening to, dis uh, to discuss uh, some of these issues with us. Uh, lots of protests in Iran. It started with the headscarf issue. A, a young woman, a 22-year-old woman that was uh, apprehended and then uh, killed by uh, supposedly the morality police in Iran, which fueled, uh, which really sparked uh, this, uh, this fire all across the country, protests in almost every city uh, and in many cities across the world about the atrocities of the Iranian government against its people. Iran, which uh, suffers uh, close to 50% uh, inflation, middle class that's basically kind of wiped out because of sanctions and because of the, you know, the authoritarian regime and the way it spends most of its dollars. Uh, majority of Iranians unhappy with their regime, but uh, they keep on the protest, but not a whole lot comes out of those protests. Iranians cannot, cannot carry arms. Um, so, protests. You know, Darius, you know, I've, I've posted on Facebook several times about this. You and I talk about this a lot. You've educated yeah. me over the years yeah. about what's going on in Iran. Sometimes, you know, American headlines uh, have right. a tendency to be really harsh on Iran because of the regime. Right. But right underneath the regime are everyday people. They want their children to have a good life. They want to go to the grocery store. They want to make dinner. They want to go to work. They want to do all the things that everybody else wants to That's do. That's right. But we kind of lose them because of the horrible regime, right? And right. every once in a while, I think about 10 years ago, there's a little breakthrough and people get to see the heartbeat of the true Iranian people, right? And this right. is one of those times. And I think we need to name this girl. And I don't know if I've got her name right because I don't speak the language, but I believe her name is Masa Amini. Right. And uh, um, our guest might be able to uh, help clarify my pronunciation. But, you know, this is just a young lady who was swept up uh, by the, you know, what do you call them? Morality, morality, morality police. police. It's like yeah. something out of George Orwell's 1984, right? <laughs> People running around, they've got the right to sweep you up. And and apparently somehow or another they killed her, right? Yeah. So, you know, the people are tired of it. I understand that last night they did a major attack at a university in Tehran. Yeah, right? that's correct. So it, it's pretty ugly and it would be wonderful. And I'd like to see what our guest says. I mean, 
Um, Hamid's been on the show, you know, three or four times over different right. issues. Um, but I'd like, I mean, is, I mean, we're spending all this energy on um, Ukraine and to support yeah. the Ukrainian people. Do we have the same love? Can we look at the Iranian people who are suffering with some of that same care yeah. and concern? That's my, that's my question. That's a great question. Get yeah. Great lead-in to Hamid Antizam. Hamid, welcome to the program. Please uh, kind of give us your perspective. Um, and uh, let's see if we can answer my co-host's question, Steve Brandau's question on, you know, uh, will the West or United States get involved uh, to help promote the, the, the democracy supporters in Iran. Welcome. Uh, you're on mute. I, I don't know if you can. We cannot hear you. You're on mute. Can you hear me now? Yes. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Good evening. Good to see you guys again. Uh, well, you know, obviously, uh, I'm heartbroken uh, by uh, seeing what's going on in Iran. We are um, seeing uh, video clips of uh, Iranians on the street every night being beaten brutally by the police. Uh, this is unfortunately a, uh, a regular practice by the Iranian government over the past 44 years. Um, periodically, there has been street protests, and every single time, the Iranian leader Khamenei uh, states that uh, the unrest is incited by foreign powers, adversaries of Iran, namely the U.S. and Israel. And right after that, he ordered his security forces to crack down, and a lot of people end up getting killed, injured, arrested. It's a regular theme. Can the U.S. government do anything? Um, honestly, I don't think the U.S. government, or for that matter, uh, any Western government, has much leverage over Iran. Uh, we have over-sanctioned in Iran, and when you sanction a country, um, you essentially disengage. And when you disengage, you're going to lose your, your leverage. Um, there is not much the U.S. government can do to um, impact uh, the day-to-day -day politics of Iran, uh, to impact how the Iranian government treats its own citizens. Um, what perhaps the West can do is um, to enable Iranians to have better access uh, to the internet, because the internet is the life um, uh, support, the you know, uh, of, of, of this whole movement. Uh, that's how the young people, the people on the street communicate with each other through social media platforms, through the internet. And unfortunately, the Iranian government um, has shut down the internet and also all the social media platforms. So people cannot easily communicate. So if um, the Western government, particularly the US, can enable Iranians to have uh, a satellite internet without having uh, big receivers in Iran, that would be a game changer. Uh, that's, I think, how the, in the West can support the Iranian people, by enabling them to communicate better with each other. 
that Elon Musk's, you know, what Starlink or Starlink, whatever it's yeah. called, you know, was operating. But I've heard that it hasn't been that helpful so far. And there's a lot of malware, or spyware that's that's it's interfering with it, interfering <laughs> with it. So maybe that is something for the future. Uh, exactly. Sad, but You're right. We've got Hamid. We've got this. Um, this deal with Iran, with the nuclear power and all of that. I know that we've over-sanctioned them, as you've talked about, but isn't there some way of getting their attention and saying, hey, we're not going to proceed with some of this stuff? If you if you quit disabusing your people, you have to do that first. Unfortunately, Steve, the fact of the matter is uh, sanctions hurt ordinary people in uh, in a given country far more than the authorities. Uh, we did against Saddam Hussein. I mean, he pretty much, Saddam Hussein, survived uh, all the sanctions and his regime ended when we invaded Iraq. Uh, the same has happened in Iran. Unfortunately, the Iranian people have suffered greatly because of the sanctions, but it's actually the government, though the cronies of the government have massed huge wealth because of the sanctions. Um, so, uh, yes, I understand that, uh, you know, sanctions have a role to play in international politics, but can sanction uh, bring the Iranian government to its knees? I'm doubtful, and I don't see any real solid evidence that that would do that. Um, there are perhaps better ways to force the Iranian government to change its international behavior and also its domestic behavior. Sanctions has obviously not worked. When Donald Trump uh, imposed you know, his uh, carte blanche sanctions on, on all the authorities in Iran, he predicted that this regime is going to collapse in six months. There we are. I mean, Donald Trump is out of office, and these guys are still in power in Iran. Uh, two questions. Number one, yeah. could you tell us, and I know this was just kind of, well, a woman died and a lot of other uh, women and men have died, but the, 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 what ignited this was the headscarf issue. Is that right. Islam? Can, tell us what Islam says about headscarf and women covering up their heads so that our, our uh, unfiltered audience understands. Right. What is it, it the government? Yeah, hijab. Is it the government hijab, of Iran right. that's doing this? Uh, you know, in Saudi Arabia, you can't even see women, right? They're covered from head to toe. Tell us about Islam versus, you know, or, or, or government's interpretation of Islam in Iran right. and Saudi Arabia. Let me, uh, it's a complex issue. We don't have that much time. So let me make some uh, uh, bullet points uh, and uh, highlight what, uh, you know, hijab is all about and Islam's position on that. Number one, hijab, uh, as you refer to as the headscarf, uh, is now mandatory in Iran. The government of Iran, after the 1979 revolution, made it a law that every single Iranian woman has to wear uh, a hijab in public, irrespective of their religion. Even atheist women in Iran have to wear it. Now, what does the Quran say about it? Number one, there is absolutely, let me be very clear, and I'm choosing my words very carefully here. There is absolutely no verse in the Quran 
that indicates that a non-Muslim woman must wear hijab. Absolutely not. It is preposterous to ask non-Muslim women in Iran, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, and elsewhere to wear hijab, to put headscarf on. Um, it's not binding on them. Secondly, I'm not even convinced whether covering hair is part of the dress code for women in Islam. Over the centuries, there has been an intense debate amongst Muslim scholars as to whether it, you know, covering the head is required for observing, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, observant uh, Muslim women. There are two different opinions. Some scholars say that it is required. Others say that it is not really required. The reason being, this particular issue covering the head is not discussed in the Holy Quran. So, you know, there are two different opinions even about that. Where does it first show up in Islam? Where does that thought come from? Actually, let me, okay. So let, in let one me minute or less, in one minute or less. It's a medieval practice. Beautiful. All it's a medieval practice, yes. So yes. just watch movies made of the Middle Ages. Western women during the Middle Ages in Europe, they exactly wear, you know, wore the same kind of dress in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. So in, in that practice crept into Islam, unfortunately. So now in, in most Muslim countries where, you know, hardliners in, in power, are in power like Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Afghanistan, women have to cover head to toe. So there's no in the Quran that says women have to be covered. Not, first of all, not for non-Muslims. Absolutely How not. How about Muslim women? For Muslim women, the Quran says they have to cover their bosoms, right? Okay. So like their chest down. But it, the whole idea is for Muslim women to dress modestly. That's the philosophy of hijab, to dress modestly. In the Middle Ages, there was a concept that the entire women's body was erotic, right? So it was, excuse the word, I, I apologize for using this word, okay? But they could perceive the, the women's body as a huge vagina that would turn men on. So they were supposed to cover themselves head to toe so that it, you know, men Got would it. not get turned on. Yeah. Got it. Isn't uh, Islam, I'm going to wrap up in 30 seconds, said no man or woman should dress in a pro provocative way. It's not only about women. Is that a, kind of get a yes or a no answer on that? Yes, okay. yes. Men cannot dress provocatively either in Islam. Okay. Let me go back to the, what's happening in Iran. Uh, where do you see these protests going? Do you think that in about a month it'll just die down because the West has other issues, uh, United States has other issues on its plate, Ukraine, Russia, Russia is an ally of Iran. They don't want to interfere and get Russia more pissed off by interfering with Iran. Iran Iranian government, I want to make sure I say this correctly, Iranian government, not the Iranian people, you know, supporting uh, Russia. 
Uh, wh where do you see this going in the next uh, month or two? Do you think it'll die down just like the Green Revolution? I think that's what, Steve, you were, yes. of 2009, you were referring yeah. to. Or do you right. think that this, this time it has legs to actually get Iran to enter the uh, uh, League of Nations and, uh, and become more of a participant uh, in good actors, uh, as good actor states? Right. Unfortunately, Andarius, I don't think that, uh, you know, the Iranian regime is going to fall um, anytime soon, uh, unfortunately, uh, because their security apparatus is very powerful. They are very brutal and they are not only well equipped, but they are very determined to crack down um, over uh, the uh, protesters, and they've done it in the past. They're not afraid of doing it again. I, we should not have any illusion about Iran blooming into a democracy, uh, you know, uh, immediately. Ultimately, Iran uh, is going to explode, and the regime is going to fall. The question is, what is the timeline and when? Fact of the matter is, as, as much as uh, most Iranians despise this brutal regime, most Iranians do not want to have another revolution because the 1979 revolution left such a bad taste in their mouth. It only brought misery, repression, and a stagnation to Iran. That nothing good came out of that revolution. And that still on the average Iranian's mind. So the question is, so we don't love, we don't like this government. We don't want to have another revolution, which is costly, which is unpredictable. You know, that's, that's really the tough question. How do you uh, bring this down, bring this regime down without a revolution? Uh, that's not an easy uh, question to answer. Ultimately, in my opinion, the path, uh, the, ultimately, we need to have a referendum on Iran, in Iran. So people can vote whether they want to have the Islamic regime in power or not. So that's the ultimate goal. That's where we should be heading. How close are we to that? that not, unfortunately, that yeah, not, unfortunately, not very close. But we are moving in the right direction, though. I think I'm very much... Uh, you know, uh, happy to see the latest protest. There are a couple of good things and positive signs that I see in the latest round of protests. Number one, women have taken the lead in the latest uprising. Now, women have taken charge and they are leading this phase of the movement. That is a very, very important development. The second development is that now you see Iranian celebrities, those who actually gained notoriety within the Islamic uh, system, now they have come out in force uh, um, uh, supporting, number one, the women's uh, protests on the street, and they have come out against the, the crackdown by security forces. That is a great development. I think the more ordinary people uh, uh, support this movement against the regime, even though it's in small uh, steps, 
that's a, that's a, that's that's great news um, in my opinion. Thank you, thank you, Hamid, for that. By the way, some of the images that we've been putting up are of a song produced by Iranian singer, and I understand the singer was arrested as well. And released, by the way. He was, fortunately, he was released on bail uh, today. Okay, but, but yeah. that's great news. That, so, that's a, that's a, for, don't forget, that's the regular Iranian regime's practice, right? They arrest a few well-known uh, folks to, to set an example for everybody else, to say, hey, look, we're watching you. You have to pay a price. That was the whole idea. They didn't keep the singer in, uh, in jail for a long time. They just wanted to, to, to uh, make a point. Do you have any experience in Iran when it comes to jails? Oh, 40 years ago, 40 years ago, when I was a teenager, I was doing exactly the same thing that you are seeing on the streets of Iran today. I, along with uh, young uh, university students, we were protesting against Ayatollah Khomeini back then. Uh, the regime was in power only for two or three years. We were chanting death to Khomeini back then on the streets of Iran. This, we and received the exact same treatment back then. Batons, brutal crackdown, yes. And I have been in solitary confinement in Iran, um, by the way. So yeah, this is, I'm, I'm familiar to the treatment. Thank, thank you, Hamid, for that. Uh, so it, it looks like the West is not gonna get involved and these protests will go on for a little bit longer and eventually die down, more crackdown, shutting down of cell phone towers so and, and get folks to not, not remove the ability to be able to congregate uh, openly. Uh, and the United States is not <clears throat> that interested in getting involved. And Iran is not, the Iranian regime is not really that interested in giving up any of its control. By the way, Iran has uh, presidential elections. Mm -hmm. But to be a candidate, you have to be approved by this group of folks. This, the I think it's a, or something. The clergy, the, the yeah, nine-member, I think it's called Council of Gar Guardians. Yeah. So it's re really their candidates that sure. <laughs> all the other folks that are reformists, and, yeah, uh, they, never make it. they never make it. Yeah, right. But let me um, let me make a couple of points. Right, uh, very briefly. I think I think if uh, protesters in Iran need to become a little bit more pragmatic, they should be realistic. Politics is all about pragmatism and realism. They need to set two concrete goals for themselves that are, that are achievable. Number one, they should ask for the morality police to be shut down, right? Because of the, what happened to Mahsa Amini, they need to make it a concrete demand from the government that they should shut down the morality police. The second demand that is achievable in the short term is to force the Iranian government to rescind the mandatory hijab law. If these two uh, goals are achieved, if, they, if the protesters force the Iranian government to make these two concessions, this is going to be a huge win for the Iranian people. The protest movement will gain momentum. It will boost the morale and confidence of the people to carry the torch forward. 
So I think it is more realistic to set a, a couple of short-term goals for this la latest round of protest in Iran rather than making, you know, uh, a broad uh, uh, demand that the government should fall down. It's not going to fall down anytime soon, unfortunately. We're going to put the uh, slide up that shows some of the cartoons that were produced by some of the Iranian folks uh, as a wrap-up. And the, the song uh, the, the, by that Iranian person is not on GV Wire yet, but we'll put it up on uh, Unfiltered out uh, tomorrow. Um, okay, Steve, any final comments? Yeah, you know, I'm uh, dis you know, disheartened to hear from Hamid that he doesn't expect uh, regime change <clears throat> anytime soon. Uh, but, I, but I do agree with you that at the end of the day, the human spirit longs for freedom. And it yes. might take decades. In the case of Iran, it's going to take a little bit longer than that. But eventually, if people continue to stand up for their freedoms of their loved ones, when they see their loved ones injured, like this young 22-year-old lady, and people grab onto that, Eventually, I believe change will come. Now, it's it's always difficult for Americans. We need to ask ourselves about regime change. Right. You know, we're all responsible <clears throat> yes. for regime change in Iran. That's right. You grew up yes. in Iran that allowed you to go to a discotheque, I believe, in Tehran. All over Tehran. Okay? <laughs> Nowadays, it's a completely different world, and we see these morality police. Please. So we're responsible for this regime change. And that truth will be, and that will even be in the case of Russia, or if we were to replace Putin with somebody, we never know what you're going to get. And sometimes it's worse than you expect. That's true. Uh, any final words from Hamid, if, if he's still with us? Yes, um, uh, I really think that we, every single one of us has a role to play. Iranians outside Iran uh, should also uh, protest. Um, they should make uh, their voices heard at a minimum. They will send a signal to their brothers and sisters inside Iran that we are with you. We are your voice outside Iran. It will definitely uh, boost the morale of the people on the streets in Iran. Uh, and also they should push, um, especially Western governments, to condemn uh, uh, you know, the Islamic Republic uh, in international forums. Uh, so these are the kind of things that the Iranians can do um, uh, overseas. Uh, another thing that, by the way, Iranians can do, ultimately at some point for this regime to come down, there has to be nationwide strikes, very similar to what happened in the 1979 revolution. One of the key reasons for the downfall of the ex-Shah of Iran was the fact that refinery oil workers went on strike. So that's what it's going to take to bring this regime down. Now, when it comes to that, when it comes to nationwide strikes, families of the strikers need to have funds, financial funds, to survive. Iranians outside Iran today, they have to start thinking about that to set up a fund so that when that day comes, they are ready. They should be proactive rather than reactive to these uh, kind of outbursts of protests in Iran.
conversation with two Iranians. So, Hamid, if you and Darius want to put together a protest, I'll be right there with you uh, to support the people of Iran. Oh, thank you. That's awesome. Let's put up our slide 16 up uh, one more time, and then we're gonna, that's going to be a wrap with that. Um, yeah, that's a great image, right? Exactly. Well, you, you know, the similarities, you know, Iran and uh, Russia, you know, dictatorship of one man with a tight security council yeah. around him, security folks around him, so that people in Russia have felt like they can't speak out against Putin or they're going to end up uh, missing, right? That's right. And not too, not too different in Iran. So you, you see this thuggery all around the world. It's not unique to any one area or people group, right? That's right. Yeah. Doris, that, if I could add something else. Oh, can Ham I say something Hamid else? is coming back. Hamid, we have one minute left before we wrap yeah. up this program. You, at, at the beginning, very beginning, you mentioned whether this form of government, uh, the Iranian government, is sanctioned by Islam. Recall that question? Yes. Let me make a couple of very brief comments. Very First brief, of all, please. Okay. Islam does not have any specific form of government. The Iranian authoritarian government has confiscated Islam, created its own ideological version of Islam to suppress a nation. Islam does not have any particular form of government, number one. The form of government in Iran, which they call balayat faqih or rule of jurist, that Doctrine, that uh, foreign doctrine is only believed in by a minority of Shiite clergy. Even the majority of Shiite clergy do not believe in that doctrine, the doctrine that Khomeini espoused. The Sunni, in Sunni Islam, this form of government has absolutely no believers whatsoever. Great. With that, that's a wrap. Uh, thank you, everybody, for watching. See you all next Tuesday on another episode of Unfiltered. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night. Good night.